You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and old guys with long beards. This is season one, episode five, Mentors. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. So what just happened in the last 35 minutes is that I kept trying to find places in my house that were quiet to record. And I'm pretty sure Siri just turned on. (laughs) Siri, (laughs) turn the construction noise off. Uh, But you're now safely ensconced in your son's room. I'm in my my son's room because it's as far away. It's close enough to the Wi-Fi and far enough away from the construction that's going on right outside my house. So there still might be some beeping in the recording or some wind noises because there's a nor'easter happening as we are recording this on the coast of Connecticut. I was thinking more about our princess episode, which I think to date has been my favorite to talk about. And we realized how many people we forgot from that episode. It's so frustrating to like do our best to brainstorm and look through like listicles on, on the internet and then to come up with like, we, we forgot all these people. So who did we forget that we wanted to just give a brief shout out to? All right. So the one that I'm kicking myself specifically forgetting is Princess Mononoke uh, from the Hayao Miyazaki movie. Uh, I love that movie. And she still falls into that same pattern that we talked about, the heroic princess. Uh, So that was the one that I am mad at myself for forgetting. What about you? I just thought of Fiona from the Shrek movies as she's another sort of subversion of the damsel in distress archetype. And she ends up being strong and uh, willing to get what she wants. And, you know, true love's kiss restores her as many princesses are restored, except as is the twist of the first movie, into a form that no one expects. Uh, we also, of course, had Princess Peach from Super Mario, but she's kind of useless, so she is we didn't useless. talk about her. She's in another castle. She's always in another castle. Today, we're going to talk about mentors. That's our next archetype. And uh, so why don't you do the scripture quote today? So our scripture quotation for this week is from Second Letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I'm reminded of your authentic faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm sure that this faith is also inside you. Because of this, I'm reminding you to revive God's gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. God didn't give us a spirit that is timid, but one that is powerful, loving, and self-controlled. And our quote from Nerd Canon comes from Star Wars The Last Jedi. Luke says to Yoda about Ray, I can't be what she needs me to be. And Yoda says, heeded my words not, did you? Pass on what you have learned, strength, mastery, but weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure most of all. The greatest teacher failure is. Luke, we are what they grow beyond. That is the true burden of all masters. We're talking about mentors today, and as we thought about all of the archetypes that exist in sci-fi and fantasy, this one was one of the most prevalent, um, but ended up being one of the hardest to really think about what to say. And so Carrie had a good idea to start this with um, just chatting a little bit about our favorite teacher growing up in school or in some facet of life, a coach, somebody like that who really had an impact on us. And so who, who is that for you, Carrie? My favorite teacher and still is my favorite teacher, is Dr. B, my high school chemistry teacher. 
she was instrumental. I, I loved her class so much that even though I was terrible at chemistry, I went back for round two and did AP chem and barely passed the class. But I loved her as a teacher and still do because she's one of my dear friends now um, because she she had this really cool career where she was like went off, was a chemist for a long time worked and developed drugs that people need uh, to feel to feel healthier. And then she decided that's not the right life for me. And she came back and became a teacher. And so all of her knowledge about chemistry was very practically rooted. And um, so we'd learn, we'd learn the stuff, but then we'd also get these wonderful ex uh, discussions on life and her thoughts on a number of subjects um, kind of related to chemistry, but mostly related just to being a person in the world. And she's taught me so many things about the need to be ourselves, about the power that there is from relationships. Um, and she's actually one of the people that got me believing in God again, which is as a 15 year old was pretty, a pretty big step in my personal journey. Um, and she's continued to teach me to this day. Um, oh, so many things. That was my favorite teacher. Um, what about yours? The one that popped to my mind, I have a couple from high school and, and college, but the one that popped to my mind was uh, Dr. Grieb, who was my seminary New Testament professor. And what I tell high schoolers as they're getting ready for college is um, don't take classes, take professors. Mm -hmm. You find that one professor who you really connect with and take every class that that professor offers that fits into your schedule. It doesn't matter what the class is because the content of the class is less important than the connection you have to that professor because you're going to learn so much more from a professor that you have a connection to uh, than just what's in the content of the course. Um, and so for me, that was Dr. Grebe in seminary, Kathy Grebe, who is a world-class New Testament scholar, was a lawyer before she became a priest, lives a very kind of ascetical life at the seminary, uh, at Virginia Theological Seminary. And I think I took six classes with her. Oh my goodness. And it was great. I basically had her every semester that I could in, in seminary, a big impact on my life, my preaching, my understanding of the Bible. It's, it's funny that both of our favorite teachers, neither of them are old bearded men. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And yet it seems like that in fantasy and in science fiction is the archetype, the wizard, the teacher. Indeed. Yeah. And that's, that's why we picked the scripture quote we did, uh, because when Paul is talking to Timothy, he uses Timothy's mother and grandmother as the examples of faith. Mm -hmm. And in the early days of the church, uh, there's a lot of evidence in scripture about women being incredibly instrumental in the uh, kickoff of what became the Christian church uh, from a financial standpoint, from a place to meet standpoint, right? you know, a house bringing right, people the into maker. their home. And uh, so I can imagine the sort of the second generation disciple in Timothy sitting at the feet of his mother and grandmother and hearing these stories of Jesus. I wonder how much of that is still true today that we learn a lot of us, I think, learn faith from, the females in our lives. And I've seen that with a lot of the young folks at my church, they get taken to church by their grandmothers. So that's that letter from uh, to Timothy was particularly special to read, to hear these names that you might ha hear have someone in your church who is a, has a grandma Lois mm -hmm. uh, yeah. or a Eunice in their lives. That's, t that's teaching them and taking them to church. Those are still great grandmother names. Even, even today, <laughs> only people who are grandmothers are named Eunice. And yet most, as you said, most of the, mentors in the fiction that we love are these bearded old men. Uh, and I think that's mostly coming from a Merlin trope. Oh, yeah. That, that, that Merlin is, the, is that uh, archetype that the other ones are building off of, specifically Gandalf and Dumbledore. 
And then in the uh, the 1960s or 70s Disney movie, The Sword in the Stone. Oh, he's yes. Very much the that old bearded man with the pointy hat. I'm so glad you mentioned that. He's one of my favorite Disney carries and I just forgot he existed until just now. Wow. <laughs> he's got the owl named Archimedes. We can talk with about Merlin and Sword in the Stone that he's kind of outside the bounds of their society in a way that gives him a perspective beyond the immediate, uh, which I feel like we, when we were doing thinking about this topic, a lot of the mentors are on the on the fringes, as it were. Mm-hmm. They have this special knowledge or experiences that provide an additional perspective or context, but it also ties them to a world beyond the immediate. Mm-hmm. And the one that jumped into my mind when you mentioned that was Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars movies, because he is this hermit living in the desert. Uh, Uncle Owen even calls him that, uh, that wizard's a crazy old man. He calls him a wizard too. Um, and Obi-Wan has spent the last couple of decades watching over Luke as Luke grows up and basically learning how to be a force ghost. He and Yoda, both in Star Wars, fall into that mentor category. And while they were very much part of the Jedi Council that living in the city planet of Coruscant during the prequel era, uh, once we, when we first meet them in the original movies, they are on that those fringes, Yoda being in Dagobah, uh, which is a planet nobody goes to, uh, and then Obi-Wan being on Tatooine, which is as Luke calls it, if there's a bright center to the universe, you're on the planet that it's farthest from. What I like about those two as examples is that they do what a lot of mentors do, which is provide important history and context and background for the hero. So Obi-Wan's the one who kind of talks about, who says, you know, I knew your dad and provides that first kind of glimmer of connection. Yeah, even if the original thing he tells Luke is not wholly accurate. Isn't that another thing that those mentors do? They'll kind of tell the hero some of the truth and make it seem like that's the whole story. Like Dumbledore says, I'm going to tell you everything, but then they don't really tell you everything. Yeah, talk about the wizard that does that. Dumbledore is the, is the one. I think because they have that one step back perspective, mm-hmm. that like head above the parapet just a little bit, they're able to see more. They see it, I think, as their duty to shape what the hero is learning. Mm-hmm. To do it, they often have quirky methods of, of teaching them that don't make sense to the hero at the time. Like you remember Luke getting so frustrated, like using the lightsaber with the blinders on. He's oh like, yeah, yeah, he's got the blast shield down. With the blast shield down. When Yoda says, tells him to lift the X-wing out of the swamp, he's like, "That's impossible. I can't. I can't do that. It's too big." Mm-hmm. And Yoda says um, to him, "You must unlearn what you have learned." which I also think is kind of an interesting way of looking at a mentor relationship where the hero encounters the mentor after the hero has ingested a lot of what the world is teaching. And mm-hmm. then the mentor brings them into the mentor's sphere and tries to pull a lot of those layers away to instill a whole new way of looking at the world. If you learn a different way or a different, a different sphere, as you were calling it, it might have to be undone first. Yoda earlier on, when Luke first comes to him, talks to the disembodied voice of Obi-Wan and says, you know, he, he's too old. Uh, he doesn't have enough patience. Uh, and therefore, I'm not going to teach him. And Obi-Wan says, well, he will learn patience. And so the mentor's role isn't, isn't to take somebody who's already done, who's already the, the hero that the hero is going to be. They, the mentor's job is to take that hero before they're ready to, you know, be on the big stage. 
So of course they're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be fully ready. And they have to see the kind of glimmers of the hero they can be, kind of like a sculptor sees maybe a shape in a block of stone before they chisel it away. They have to be able to imagine in their minds where they could end up. And so when we, we talk about these mentors, they always have a hero linked to them because you, you really can't be a mentor without that relationship. And so Obi-Wan has Luke, Yoda has Luke, and then Luke in the sequel era becomes a reluctant mentor to Rey. That's why I love that that quotation you you had picked for this for our quote from Nerd Canon about you know what what goes into being a teacher, what does what needs to be passed on. We are what they grow beyond is really the beautiful encapsulation of what a mentor is. Uh, in other words, the mentor teaches the hero the tradition, and then the mentor leaves allowing the hero to blaze their own trail, integrating and adapting what they have learned to the circumstances of the future. The mentor has to exit in order to allow the hero to blossom. Well, that requires so much humility and wisdom on their part to say, it's not ultimately about me. I am equipping this person with this skill, with this background, with physical equipment like the lightsaber, handing Mm -hmm. it off, Mm -hmm. and then I will remove myself. And you also see that in terms of the fact that so many of these mentors are Mm self-sacrificing. Think about how many of them literally, you know, die as a result of trying to protect the hero. You've got Obi-Wan, Dumbledore, Gandalf, all of them kind of put their lives on the line for the sake of the hero to further their quest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've, you've got a couple more on our list here. Uh, Morpheus in the matrix does the same thing. That's right. When Gandalf dies uh, fighting the Balrog in Fellowship of the Ring, we assume that he's gone. Right, that it's up to them now. We, we assume that that was it. He, he just did an incredibly heroic sacrifice, taking on a creature of, of epic proportions. But what has happened in that story, from The Hobbit first, where he brings Bilbo in, and then also in the first part of the Fellowship of the Ring, when he is helping to guide Frodo and then bring the Fellowship together, uh, he's a mentor both to Frodo and to Aragorn. Well, there's that that passing down then where he, he mentored Aragorn and then Aragorn is in a lot of ways a mentor to the hobbits mm-hmm. before coming to his own power as, as the king eventually. Let's talk about Dumbledore for a minute. Dumbledore as a mentor to Harry, it, it's interesting because it's not until the later books where we actually get a lot of screen time between Dumbledore and Harry. Yeah, they don't really have, I mean, they have a couple of those end of book, let's wrap it all up conversations, but the really intense ones, I think the turning point comes at the end of book five, mm-hmm. I would say. I mean, they have a conversation at the end of Goblet of Fire, but really, I think when Harry and his relationship flourishes in a very strange way is when Harry's wrecking his office at the end of book five and shouting at him, and he's, you kind of see their relationship growing in an interesting way. He's the safe adult for Harry to rail at. Uh, as a parent, uh, parents will often talk about the fact that kids tend to be worse around their own parents than around other adults because mm-hmm. they know that their parents love them and they're safe around their parents. And so for Harry to be able to unleash his, his anger, his frustration, his grief over losing Sirius in Dumbledore's presence shows kind of deep down how much Harry loves Dumbledore and needs that relationship. I never thought about that because, you know, he has a lot of anger at the Dursleys, but he would never 
shout at them that way because he would fear that punishment. So I, I see what you mean about him being a safe person. And it's also the, you know, the book where we see Dumbledore kind of laying it all out there. And that's the beginning of this, not mutual, they're never really mutual on any level until the reversal that comes at the end of book six, when Dumbledore is literally leaning on Harry, but you see a little bit more of a back and forth learning from each other. Um, and then Dumbledore starting to, I guess, in that process, preparing the way to step back. Yeah. And then in book six, it's really, he really takes on the quality of, of a teacher trying to give him all of the backstory that Harry needs in order to go on the quest. Because at that point, Dumbledore knows that he's not going to last uh, due to the curse that has taken his hand. But he also has that, that quirkiness, that bizarre, you know, bizarre character that a little bit on the fringes, a little bit on the outskirts. Um, and I, one of the things I like about Dumbledore as a character is he's very cognizant of the fact that he should not be in power. That's mm. one of mm-hmm. the things I think that he is defines his character is that he could be extremely powerful. He could be the minister of magic, but he stays back. He wants to be a teacher. It's all he's ever wanted to be. And he also knows himself well enough to not trust himself with that kind of power. Yeah, similar to Gandalf mm. with not not taking the ring. Gandalf could easily overpower anybody in the fellowship and take the ring for himself, but he knows that if he did that, it would not go well. He would probably just turn into another Sauron. So it's another, I guess, another instance of humil- of a mentor's humility becoming really important where they realize they do not have the strength of will, the pureness of heart that a hero might have. So they are going to do their best to shape the hero, and then they're going to step back and let them truly be the center. There's an interesting uh, tension in that stepping back, that leaving of a mentor figure in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The mentor in that is Giles, the Watcher. And for the first five plus seasons of that show, he is very much a part of first the growth of Buffy as a character, as a fighter, as the Slayer. And then after she graduates from high school and is in college or is off on her own, he, he kind of is like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing now. She's, I've launched her. She's off on her own. I, I don't really have a purpose anymore. And in season six, he ends up leaving. The, uh, the actor leaves the show as a regular character. He comes back as a guest star a few times. Uh, but he leaves right after the musical episode of Buffy, which is one of the best hours of TV you could possibly watch of all time. Ah. Uh. What? I agree to disagree. You don't like the Buffy musical? No. Then you are dead to me. Um, we're end of podcast. But in but in the Buffy musical episode, he sings about the fact that he's standing in the way of Buffy becoming her own uh, her own hero, fully fledged on her own, standing on her own two feet. I did have an example of female mentors that I was excited to think of mm-hmm. um, in terms of the what they do, hitting those that list of providing history, context, background, skills, knowledge, and equipment. The Mrs. W's from A Wrinkle in Time. Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which, because they literally, you know, they're these otherworldly beings that provide them with transport to the other planets. They kind of have that Dumbledorean love is the most powerful weapon that they give that gift to Meg, the hero. And they the glasses that they give her are allow her to see clearly and allow them to, I think they use it to transport themselves off of the planet safely. But there's, I know I was trying so hard to think of good female mentors along this, these lines mm, of the kind mm-hmm. of beguiling older 
slash immortal, you know, Merlin-esque figures. And they're the only ones I could come up with who were, and they're not, I don't even know if they're necessarily female. They're portrayed as female. And they're also kind of weird too. They're they, super weird. They're really weird. Yeah. yeah. They're very quirky in that respect. Yeah. And they, the people they got to play them in the most recent movie, I thought were very good. Oprah, Mindy Kaling and Reese Witherspoon, right? Yeah. What a, what a trio right there. So when we talk about mentors in these fantasy properties and also in our own lives and in our lives of faith, we see that idea of the transmission of tradition and then hopefully the evolution of that tradition. Because if it's just straight transmission and then uh, there isn't anything being built on that, then there wasn't really ever a need to uh, have a hero become themselves, become their own person moving forward. And I think that when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in the Christian tradition, that's where we get the license to say the, the, the Bible is still speaking in new ways to us and we can continue to interpret it. Again, holding on to our traditions and using those traditions as lenses to look at the future. And at the same time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, seeing what new things God has to say to us today. Yeah, that the Holy Spirit is still working in our world. All the knowledge of our Creator did not just get put in a put in a book and stopped there. That idea that that there is still wisdom to be found. Yeah, and it's not that we're evolving to ever better things than we ever were before. Sometimes there's rediscovery of old old things that can be then recontextualized in the new, uh, a la Moana, which we'll probably reference every single podcast. It makes me think of um, the whole new monasticism movement, how that's kind of been a rediscovery of this ancient monastic tradition. We also have old monasticism that's just ongoing, but um, at least in our denomination, we have monks and nuns who are trying to adapt these ancient traditions into into the 21st century. My favorite example of this is the monks at Society of St. John the Evangelist in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They have a very robust online presence and ministry, really taking the wisdom that they as, um, as monks have accumulated and that they teach, and they are spreading it to the world through short videos, through reflections, through um, the invitation to reflect every Lent alongside them, um, and as well as having a physical place to go to. I think another person in that same vein is uh, Richard Rohr, yeah. who is an author, a uh, spiritual thinker, uh, who's out in, is he in Arizona or New Mexico. And we also see um, a similar type of thing with Dr. Cynthia Bourgeau. I know a lot of people who are kind of her modern day, fo- her followers in a lot of ways that she's this this figure that draws people to kind of like go sit at, at the feet of this wise person, learn from them, and then go back out into the world on your journey. So we have, yeah, we have a modern rich and very rich tradition of these kind of mentor figures in our faith. We, we seek out mentors in our own lives because we are sensing the fact that we need to be connected to something of the past that there is something bigger than ourselves that we don't really understand our connection to. And we know that there are people in our orbits who do, and we go to, we go and seek those people out and learn from them so that we can then continue to grow our own tradition and bring it forward into the next uh, period of time. And Christianity as a religion has grown over time in some good ways and some not so good ways. And right now we are in a space, especially in the the United States, where we're trying to reclaim some of the earliest 
understandings of what it meant to be the church uh, in the what we call the new missional age, the uh, trying to recover the energy, the verve of the original apostles as they went out into the world that was not already Christian. So our mentor figures might be stuck in an older paradigm and need to be drawn into the newer one. Uh, but at the same time, that tradition is all has always been there and needs to continue to be nurtured so that we can bring it into the future. We'll just need to, need to discover how God needs us to be in this world where more and more people don't go to church, where more and more people don't have that knowledge of of scripture, of faith, of tradition, to learn where is God at work in the world right now and how can we be the best tools that we need to be? And that might look different than it has looked for the last 1500 years where we've been in this place of privilege and power in the middle of society as church becomes more and more fringy. Mm-hmm. I think we're draw- I'm drawing a lot of um, inspiration and joy from those very early apostles, hopefully without the stoning part. That would be great <laughs> to avoid that. Now that uh, as the church continues to lose its uh, power in the world, uh, as more and more people are moving towards a secularism, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that God has lost God's power in the world. It just means that the church needs to find new places, realign itself to find where God is working in the world, whether it's in the church or outside of the church. Um, I am always amazed when my favorite creatives profess to be atheists. Hmm. Um, that includes Joss Whedon, who made Firefly and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the first two Avengers movies, among other things. Uh, also, my one of my favorite bands, the Decemberists, their lead singer prof- professes to be atheist. And I think, wow, you guys create this amazing stuff. And yet you think of yourselves as atheists. What does that say about how the faith has been transmitted? Because what I see in your work is something very profound and deep that does connect me to God in a lot of ways. And yet it, it, it doesn't seem to be coming from that source. And the character that best encapsulates that for me, this sort of tension is Shepard Book from, from Firefly. His, he is basically clergy, mm-hmm. right? He is a shepherd, which is the translation of the Latin word pastor. Uh, I would actually totally go by Shepard Adam if I Shepherd could Adam. get away with it because it's awesome. Uh, he dresses in clergy clothes on the show. The actor they got to portray Shepherd Book, Ron Glass, is perfect in that mentor role. Mm-hmm. He just exudes that gravitas with a little bit of playfulness, with the ability to set everybody in their place and also be very comforting. He just really encapsulates all of that. It's wonderful. And he has some really profound moments in the show where I see the creators kind of reaching for something, reaching for some language that they might not really grasp because they, they aren't connected to a faith tradition necessarily. And yet they write this character who is. We don't know a lot about Shepard Book because the show didn't get to run long enough for us to find out about him. But what we do suspect, and I know there's some comic books that talk about this, which I haven't read, um, but he had something to do with the, the evil government. Maybe he was in, in it somehow and then, or was in some sort of special forces, something like that. And then he left to become a shepherd. Some, we assume he had some disillusionment or something like that. 
And there's a great scene in one of the episodes of Firefly, one of the precious few episodes of Firefly, in which he is speaking to River. And Shepard Book says, River, you don't, yeah, you don't fix the Bible. And River says, it's broken. It, it doesn't make sense. And Shepard Book says, it's not about making sense. It's about believing in something and letting that belief be real enough to change your life. It's about faith. You don't fix faith, River. It fixes you. And that quote has stayed with me for a long time. And that came out in 2003 or four, somewhere, somewhere in there. And I saw it in 2006 or seven. And I've always loved that idea about um, you don't fix faith, it fixes you. And that's his mentoring role in her life. Uh, he, he doesn't understand everything. And yet he does have some gems to, to pass on. I love about him is he's not full of explanations and answers necessarily. It's, it's those short little nuggets that kind of turn whoever he's talking to turns their thoughts a little bit deeper, kind of just nudges them on, on the right path. You have another quote here about from, um, from Mal and then Shepard book responding of saying, you know, when I talk about belief, why do you always assume I'm talking about God? And there's that, that's from the serenity movie and that he's not explaining anything back to him. He's just, sort of re- reframing his assumptions, saying, is that what I was saying? And I love that they're not, it's not forceful, it's very gentle. Yeah, and, and when a mentor is too forceful, they, they almost lose the role of mentor. All of the mentors that we're talking about here do that nudging work. It's about turning the hero 25 degrees, 30 degrees to look at this thing over here. It, and, and once the hero can see that, now a new world has opened up to them, has been expanded. And I think in our own lives, we have, again, those teachers that we talked about at the beginning that do that kind of expanding work for us, where we're looking at the world kind of with blinders on, and then we're able to, to open up our perspective and see in a new way. Ultimately, it becomes more powerful if the work is done by the hero themselves, because it becomes, they own it more. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense to them if they're if it's mostly their work. They're not just repeating back someone else's thoughts and feelings and opinions. They're instead making them their own, taking that tradition and changing it and passing it on in their own way. So we're curious, Carrie and I are wondering who your mentors are, uh, who in your life has expanded your vision, who's taught you a tradition, who has brought you into something greater than yourself and then said, here, this is yours now. And now it's time for our ongoing book group. We're talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Chapter 8, The Potions Master. Who doesn't like starting at a new school where there are missing staircases, the walls pretend to be doors, and a pet poltergeist literally pulls the rug from underneath you? Sounds like a health and safety nightmare. But you know what they say, no safer place than Hogwarts. Harry and Ron settle into a routine of going to classes, navigating the various tricks that Hogwarts throws their way, and avoiding Argus Filch, the nasty caretaker. Too bad he didn't believe them, that they were lost when he found them trying to force their way into the out-of-bounds hallway on the third floor. I wonder what's behind that door. But Hogwarts quickly becomes Harry's world. Even the daily arrival of the post by Owl doesn't surprise him after a week. 
Hagrid's invitation to tea is just what he needs to get through a truly awful first lesson with Professor Snape, who seems to hate Harry for some reason. He is terribly unfair, a particularly ineffective teacher, and mercilessly goads Harry, a dynamic we will all be thoroughly sick of by the end of book six. Ron and Harry take tea with Hagrid, learning an important lesson early on that visits to Hagrid are a balm on the soul and a bane on the teeth. Even though he is their friend, Hagrid is clearly hiding something when Harry mentions Snape's particular hatred towards him. And that's not the only secret Hagrid is keeping. When the boys discover a newspaper clipping saying that the vault Harry and Hagrid visited a month ago had been broken into, Hagrid won't meet their eye. What could he be hiding about the break-in or about Snape? Chapter 9, The Midnight Duel Harry begins to learn that there are worse things than a mean cousin who bullies and isolates you. That thing is Draco Malfoy. And even though Harry had been looking forward to learning how to fly a broomstick more than anything else at Hogwarts, his pleasure is dampened by the fact that Malfoy will be there. Tempers are rising between Malfoy and his goons and Harry and Ron. At the flying lesson, things come to a head. Neville breaks his wrist and Madame Hooch escorts him to the hospital wing, leaving a group of 11-year-olds unattended outside in the presence of broomsticks with only the threat of expulsion to keep their feet on the ground. Malfoy finds Neville's Remembrall and flies into the air with it, threatening to leave it in a tree. This upsets Harry, who, as we will learn in the course of seven books, cannot tolerate injustice and frankly can't keep his nose out of other people's business. Harry climbs aboard his broom and suddenly realizes he's a natural. He's so natural that when Malfoy throws the Remembrall into the air, Harry successfully dives, catching the ball and pulling it out of his dive a foot from the ground. But his triumph is interrupted by McGonagall. Instead of expelling him, however, she gives him a place on the Gryffindor Quidditch team. And what is clearly an underhanded slash illegal recruitment scheme? I wonder how many galleons McGonagall has riding on the cup this year. Did that sound enough excitement for our main character? No, there's more. Draco challenges Harry to a duel at midnight in the trophy room. Harry and Ron show up, trailed by Hermione, who told them not to, and Neville, who was locked out, only to find Draco missing and Filch sniffing around. It must have been a setup from that underhanded lying Slytherin. The four Gryffindors flee from Filch and his cat, and Hermione unlocks a door so they can hide, but the door was locked for a good reason. They find themselves face-to-face with a monstrous three-headed dog. Fleeing again and returning to the common room, Hermione snaps at the unobservant boys. The dog was guarding a trap door in the ground. Could this be where the package from Gringotts ended up? Only time will tell. Chapter 10, Halloween. In an egregious display of favoritism, Harry receives a top-of-the-line Nimbus 2000 broomstick from Professor McGonagall, sending Malfoy into another tailspin of envy. In Charm's class, Hermione and Ron are paired together to work on the levitation spell, Wingardium Leviosa. Possibly concerned for his safety, but more likely unable to resist correcting anyone who is wrong, Hermione tells Ron that he's doing the spell wrong. Ron complains to Harry about how much of a nightmare she is after class, and the boys catch a glimpse of a tear-stained Hermione rushing past. She doesn't show up for the rest of their classes, and the boys find out that she has been in the bathroom all afternoon, crying. The distraction arrives in the form of a spectacular Halloween feast. The decorations and food look amazing, but this delightful banquet is interrupted by Quirrell, sprinting into the Great Hall and shouting that there is a troll in the dungeon. Harry and Ron, realizing that Hermione doesn't know about the danger, hustle off to warn her instead of, I don't know, telling any of the numerous adults that there is a student unaccounted for. On the way to the girls' lavatory, they see Professor Snape, all alone, hurrying to the third floor corridor. A stench of sewage has the boys realizing that the troll is no longer in the dungeons. It is right there in the corridor with them. 
They triumphantly lock it into a room off the corridor before hearing a scream. And they have the sinking realization that they've locked the troll into the bathroom with Hermione. In an impressive display of teamwork, magical skills, and just plain dumb courage, Harry and Ron manage to subdue the troll, with Harry climbing on its back and Ron levitating the club and knocking it out. The teachers arrive, too late as usual, and demand an explanation, and Harry and Ron are shocked when Hermione lies for them, giving them a totally unnecessary cover story that places the blame squarely on her shoulders. McGonagall giveth and McGonagall taketh away a shockingly small number of house points, and the newly forged trio retreat to the Gryffindor Tower, safe for the time being, and friends for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it, it is weird that Hermione could have just said, I was crying in the girls' bathroom, and they came to warn me about the troll. She didn't need to lie at all. I was wondering if maybe she thought they were seeking out the troll, like, for their own glory, kind of like she lies. So she thinks she takes their motivation, what she assumes is their motivation, and puts it on herself. So I have almost nothing to say about the Potions Master chapter. It's just yeah, terrible. It, it's just a lot of, you know, exposition and Snape being cruel. I just remember being a, a small child with a very deeply ingrained Hufflepuff sense of justice and feeling furious at that chapter. And I still am. I still have so much problems with Snape, even though, I, you know, his, his backstory and his love, but he's still terrible all the time. Um, there are some fun details uh, in chapter nine that I really love. Uh, I love the detail of Ron poking Dean's West Ham soccer poster. Trying to get the players to move. <laughs> yeah, it's just great because now we know that Dean is Muggleborn as well, just like Hermione. Yeah. And while Harry's not Muggleborn, he at least grew up in the Muggle world. When we see that continuing acclimatization of magical and Muggle worlds meeting, and these before they all kind of get evened out later on, they're still figuring out like what's you know what's a soccer team or what's a, right. a football club, whatever you call it. I love the fact that Parvati Patil is just like this firecracker. I had no idea that she keeps standing up for people in these, in this chapter. It happens twice. She stands up to Malfoy about Neville and then she stands up for Harry. It's just great. I feel like, I feel like she has, yeah, she has those two moments before she kind of retreats into being a background character. Yeah. And she'll, she'll pop up here and there again. Uh, but it would have been neat if she had had a little bit more to do besides be Ron's date to the Yule ball or whatever like it gossipy, is. Gossipy, giggly, silly girl. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. She starts with this kind of great fire in her belly. And then, yeah, I, I guess maybe the author was trying to pare down how many characters she was using. I mean, there are a lot of first years in these, and especially before the, the trio is formed, I feel like there's so many characters like Neville's got, got has a lot of lines. The, Seamus too. Seamus does, and they, they all show up in the rest of the books, but before the three main, even before you know that Hermione is a main character, I mean, you've got all these other people. And so we, in these chapters, we see Harry discovering another part of his identity that, that he's apparently an awesome Quidditch player, flyer. Yeah, he, he just feels completely natural on a broom of everything that's happened to him for the whole book. This is the place where we really see him find joy. I think there's some interesting discussion to be had around uh, the ethics of Harry taking off on the broom after Malfoy. Uh, so let's dive into some ethics here, right? Rule breaking. There's so many rule breaking. So Harry goes after Malfoy in the broom. Hermione shouts at him about Madame Hooch telling them to stay on the ground, but he ignores her. And so when is breaking the rules the right thing to do? And that's actually a common theme throughout Harry Potter because they break the rules so often 
most of the time without a ton of consequence, you know, a detention here or there, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet oftentimes they're breaking those rules for very good reasons. So the question here, is Harry breaking the rules to save Neville's Remembrall, or is it just because this is a convenient excuse to to confront Malfoy? I really see it as a both and. I mean, obviously the latter reason is very compelling, but I remember in reading this, you don't know how important, it's just a little plot point. It's this stupid little trinket. It's probably not worth very much at all. It was a gift from Neville's grandma, that's important, but it seemed like I think Harry didn't quite know how relatively unimportant the thing was. He just knows that, you know, something wrong is happening. He knows that Malfoy is really trying to egg on Harry, but at the same time, he's damaging something in Neville's. Yeah, so there's a little bit of injustice, a little bit of sticking up for the little guy, and then there's also a, I want to I wanna put this kid in his place. Like, he, they have that, that little gleeful, like, oh, he was delighted when... Madam Hoot showed Draco that he was holding the broom wrong or something. Like he's, oh, he's looking, he's looking for reasons to hate this kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to get any points he can over him. Yeah. And it won't be until the second book where we meet Draco's family and we really realize what Draco's been drinking his whole life. And I feel a little bit sorry for Draco when we get to that point. And then a lot of what the story is from there on out for Draco is, is really a redemption story. But there is, I mean, there's so much rule breaking in these chapters and some of it, like the remember all, I think is totally pointless. It does serve a great way to advance the plot and say, hey, Harry's really good at Quidditch. It has weird consequences. I mean, he gets, he gets, doesn't get expelled despite explicitly being told they'll be expelled if they leave the ground. Instead, he gets placed on the Quidditch team against the rules and then gets a broomstick. Like I kind of am on Hermione's side when she's like tutting about this. <laughs> does she tut? Oh, I think she tuts. She yeah, tuts she's a, a lot. She's a tutter. It's her preferred method of correcting people. I think that does happen a lot in, in children's fiction where the main character breaks rules and then gets rewarded. Maybe it's part of the quirkiness of being a hero is that you, you get away with more stuff. You can, in order to be a hero, you have to break some rules. Like in the second book, when they're brewing the polyjuice potion, they, they feel like they have to do it. They have yeah, to break well, the rules. They can also justify a lot that way, which might not be justified. So Right. Uh, I like that the flying is Harry's first connection to his father. Oh, yeah, that's Both sweet. Both being excellent yeah. Quidditch players. Aside from their looks, I mean, that's that's kind of trivial, but the flying is real. Um, I think that it's interesting that about the wizard's duel that Draco's egging them into, uh, Hermione uh, says that they shouldn't do it because they'll lose points for Gryffindor. She talks about it being very selfish. Uh, Hermione is looking out for the whole group of Gryffindors while Harry and Ron are really only looking out for themselves, their own honor and so forth. Uh, and she says, don't you care about Gryffindor or do you only care about yourselves? Mm. So at that point in the, in the story, uh, Hermione is really trying to uh, show them that their actions have consequences, not just for themselves, but for the whole ecosystem and for Gryffindor specifically. And an ecosystem that is very much invested on that interhouse competition. I mean, I never, especially given how, bizarrely deployed that the house point system is but i mean harry and ron aren't doing it for any systemic reason they're just being silly boys Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the halloween chapter uh near the beginning after the whole wingardium leviosa thing we get the moment where hermione walks by ron and harry in in that tearful distress it stated specifically that ron is uncomfortable because he realized that hermione heard her heard him 
Mm-hmm. And it just gets me to this, to this idea of, you know, like cyberbullying about anytime we're able to, you know, go online and vent our spleen about somebody or something without any type of, of reaction from that other person we can, that we can see, it just is easier to do and we can distance and we can say, well, you know, it's fine even because we can't see the effect that we're having on the other person. Mm-hmm. But Ron's hurtful words would be hurtful whether or not Hermione hurt him. Right. And he's, he's made to face the, the response that she has. But if he had said them in, in a more roundabout manner, it'd still be a bad thing to be doing. Right. Or, or like your uncle's racist comment at Thanksgiving dinner is still racist, even if there aren't any people of color nearby to hear it. Right. Right. And, and still needs to be challenged as such. Well, and Harry does not challenge Ron's remarks. He lets them go. He's a silent. He's silently assenting to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In in the same way that letting someone go on a, a racist or sexist or whatever is tirade they might be doing, um, or even just having a joke that's oh, I was just kidding. Mm-hmm. Being quiet is essentially giving more power to that voice. I think it also shows an early early seeds of his character as Luna later says, you know, he's quite funny, but he also can be very unkind. In the, in the movie version, he's actually doing it kind of to get a laugh, I think, out of the other guys. Um, and that can be very hurtful. It, which is a very teenage boy thing to do. I think J.K. Rowling really has a good pulse on teenage boys. The last part of the Halloween chapter is the author commenting on what's just happened. But from that moment on, Hermione Granger became their friend. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a twelve-foot mountain troll is one of them. Well, it makes it makes me want think about like what experiences do bond people together, um, and what what really does bring people together fully. I was reminded rereading this of I took a silent retreat when I was in college, um, my senior year. Instead of going to Cancun for spring break, I went to a, a monastery with a bunch of other uh, people from my school, and we didn't talk like 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 you do. Like you do when you go to a Jesuit college. Um, we didn't talk all weekend, so the drive out there was very awkward if we didn't know each other. And we spent this week in silence together, not even really making eye contact. And the drive home was so elated and joyous. And I don't say, I'm not going to say these people are friends for life, but I definitely feel like we, we bonded through this kind of strange out other, outside of our normal lives experience. And I kind of felt like it was a bit of the spiritual and mental equivalent of knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll. Hmm. and really being brought together by this, by this experience. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think when we think about our friends, what was it really that bonded us? Mm. You, know, you think about your best friend, try to imagine back, what was that moment when you realized that you were going to be friends forever? Was there a crystallized moment? Was it just something that snuck up on you over time? Uh, was there a particular encounter uh, or event that led you to uh, friendship, and by being by looking back and kind of interrogating your past for those things, that can help us in our lives of faith to continue to connect to other people. Maybe not as deeply as we do to our oldest mm-hmm. friends, but finding those same ways that we connect, uh, we can find those with other people as well, and bring a smaller version of that deeper connection we have for a best friend to our other relationships. And so much of it is a decision that's made. I mean, they make the choice to go seek out Hermione and find her. They could have, they could have gotten an adult, but they chose to take it on them to take responsibility and go find her on their own. So I'm thinking of my friends that have decided, I'm just going to be friends with you no matter what it takes 
forever. I'm just going to make that choice and that commitment. Um, and I'm wondering about the choices we make to commit to you know, a community of faith, to God, um, that it's not something that happens accidentally, but it does require, it has, we have these momentous experiences that bring us closer together, but then maybe also it's just a choice in the day in, day out plotting. And the, I love the, the sort of mundane aspects of their friendships from this point onwards. They're studying together, they're hanging out, they're eating. It's nothing spectacular, but that builds up over a lifetime. Next time on our book club, we're going to tackle a whole bunch of chapters at once because we realized that doing the three today, there wasn't a lot to talk about. Uh, so we're going to do chapters 11 through 15 all at once so that we can get to the climax of the book. Chapter 11 through 15, that's Quidditch, The Mirror of Erised, Nicholas Flamel, Norbert, The Norwegian Ridgeback, and The Forbidden Forest. Anything in there that you're looking forward to, Carrie? Uh, skipping, skim reading all the Quidditch scenes and watch and rereading for like the hundredth time The Mirror of Erised, my favorite chapter, I think, in all of the early Harry Potter books. So thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. Check out my fantasy novels, The Storm Curtain and The Halfling Contagion on my website or amazon.com. My new novel, The Islands of Shattered Glass comes out before Christmas. So look for that soon. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. May God, our first teacher and guide, grant you wisdom to seek out mentors and hear what they are teaching you. Grant you knowledge to be a better hero and grant you the inspiration you need to keep going on your quest. And the blessing of God be among you and remain with you always. Amen. He's the OG wizard, wizard mentor teacher, as they say. <laughs> the the original gangster wizard. That's like a thing, isn't it? I don't oh, know. yeah, OG is a phrase, but it means original gangster. He, he would be the OW. I thought it just stood for original. I'm pretty sure G is gangsta. <laughs> oh, crap. Crud. <laughs> so he would be the OW. The OW. The original wizard.